0: All right, in this episode of 51 Vets, we sit down with Mark Jones, partner at River Associates. And what we're going to be talking about is his career leading up to River Associates, uh, what River Associates is, and Like getting into the nitty gritty of what he does day to day, the structure of the firm, what people do inside of the private equity firm at the operating companies, uh, the portfolio companies that they have invested in. So Mark, thanks a lot for for doing this. And would you mind kind of giving a high level intro and and then we can kind of dive into some questions and it'd be great, um, Mike, if you can kind of take it from there.
1: Sure. So I guess the nickel overview on River Associates is we've been investing in lower middle market companies. Generally speaking, that means you know twenty-ish million in revenue to maybe a hundred million-ish in revenue. When we think about it on a more more importantly on an EBITDA size. So kind of um, pre-tax, pre-in, pre-interest, pre-depreciation of three to twelve-ish million is typically where our platform companies are. We uh, we were founded in 1989. Um, So we've been around a long, long time, which is pretty unusual. Um, We're investing Fund 7, which is a $285 million uh, committed capital fund. Our underlying investors are um, institutions, family offices, wealthy individuals, uh, probably 60-ish percent uh, institutions in Fund 7. And they really entrust us to go find opportunities Um, find these companies and help them grow and get bigger and better. We are um, what's affectionately known as an industry generalist. So we don't really focus on any one type of vertical, say a healthcare or consumer products or what have you. Um, That said, probably 70% of what we've done historically has been into industrial-ish companies, typically manufacturing uh, B2B product type companies. And our role within these companies, um, our letterhead says investments with management. So we are not trying to run these companies day to day. We are not buying companies, we are investing in people. So oftentimes we have a core of a management team at these companies um, and we will, we will sometimes augment the team but we are not parachuting into these companies to run them day to day. There are a lot of firms that have an operating partner model where they really are assigning somebody, they're spending a lot of time physically at the facility, that is not our model. We, we bill ourselves as active directors and I think that's a pretty apt description. Um, oftentimes we are applying a buy and bill thesis with these companies. So we'll find a, a platform in a given space and then go seek uh, potential strategic add-ons. And we've, we've done uh, we've done add-ons in probably two-thirds, seventy percent of the companies that we have invested in. Our next uh, investment will actually be our hundredth investment historically. So um, you know, been a lot of different, lot of different companies, um, and we will continue to stay focused on lower middle market companies. We're going to resist the temptation of raising a much bigger fund and going up market. We like the space where we are. We like the types of companies um, in which we invest, and we'll keep. We'll keep forging ahead.
0: That, that's awesome. Um, I guess one of my quick questions is, um, how many people are in the firm? Like, how many analysts, associates, or what is the actual structure of the firm? And it would be interesting to kind of hear, maybe starting from the ground up. Yep. You know, what does the analyst do? What does the associate do? How did they get to where they're at? Yep. What does your day to day look like?
1: So we've got uh, we've got five partners. We've got two VPs and um, we've got two associates. So no, no actual analyst. Typically, um, the most common way into private equity is through an investment bank analyst program. And so they are analysts then, they join us typically as associates. Um, the roles, um, most everybody with the exception of me, is pretty involved with the different portfolio companies. So um, I'm, I'm kind of the front end of the machine. So um, I am working to develop relationships and develop deal flow from all kinds of sources, um, primarily boutique investment banks, some business brokers, some um, accountants and attorneys, people like that that know what we like and can bring us into, um, into a given opportunity. Um, I typically attend most of the initial management meetings because I like to sell us and I enjoy, uh, I enjoy meeting with the companies and meeting the different people in the companies. But once we sign a company up to letter of intent, I'm going to extricate myself from the process so I can help find the next opportunity. Um, I won't sit on the boards um, of the companies just because it's a, it's a lot of time. It takes a lot of time and it takes time away from... Um, what I need to be doing, which is finding um, the next opportunity. My colleagues are very involved and we will typically staff um, a given portfolio company with a couple of partners, a a VP and an associate. And they really work with the team, they get to know them well, they execute on a strategic plan. Um, We will oftentimes contract with a third-party buy side firm to help identify potential strategic acquisitions. so it's, I mean, it is it is helping the management team take a, you know, 20, 30, $40 million business and make it a 60, 70, 90, $100 million business. And that happens, we, we model um, our investments like most private equity groups on a five-year hold. You know, we've sold in less, we've sold in more. It generally depends on if the investment thesis has been realized and how much equity value has been created. Um, and just general M&A market conditions. We do tell uh, our managers, and we're very honest about this, we will never sell a company without them being on board. That's not our game. Um, we, we realize, and we've, we've done this all through our, our tenure, um, those people are going to be our best or our worst references one day. So we're very protective of those relationships. And listen, it has served us extremely well. And I, you know, it's interesting, I hear some horror stories on the trail about you know, the, the conflict between private equity and management teams, and ours has been the polar opposite of that. And sometimes we actually have to, uh, it's interesting, because there's, there's you know, there's, there's certainly some negative headlines out there about private equity. And um, every group is not created the same. And so I think what most investment bankers will do will, in a process, they will allow companies to meet with, you know, a, a wide range of groups and have exposure. And an exposure to different styles. And we have found our style is a great fit with um, companies that are seeking it, their first time institutional capital, because it's a low key, it's a partnership style. Listen, we want to win, but it's not a hard charging. It's not an in your face. It's not the operating partner model. And I think they really, they really appreciate that.
2: Have you always been in the origination side on the business development, or did you start off in the transaction piece and then see a need that was critical to just focus on the actual deal sourcing?
1: That's a great question, Mike. And that's exactly how I started. I started kind of wearing a bunch of hats. Um, I, I call it affectionately the old the old model of private equity, which everybody kind of does a little of everything. They're, they're sourcing deals. They're getting involved in deals. They're working on the financing. They're closing them. They're staying involved. And- and that's fine, but I think most of, I don't know what the numbers are, the percentage are, I think most um, private equity firms have migrated away from that to be a little more siloed, and um, I have to imagine the majority of private equity groups now have a dedicated business development function. Um, its it, it helped me though to start in that role because I understand the transactions. I understand all facets of closing the business, and um, I also speak for the firm, so I know I know what we're going to like. Uh, investment bankers, intermediaries—they trust me to tell them if if we're going to chase something hard or not. And and listen, the second best answer is a quick no, right? And so I think that has served me extremely well. Um, you know, it's there's a lot of different models out there about business development. Um, I, I will not only develop the relationship, have in-person meetings with these people, I will review confidential information memorandums, the SIMs. I will, I will tell the investment banker if it's a good fit or if it's not a good fit. I know the financing side of it. Um, so that's one model. Um, and I do the management meetings, as I said. Um, another model might be somebody who is truly just on the road, playing golf, going to dinners, they don't actually review any of these sims, which it's just a different it's just a different model. Thus ours works for us, um, and I would I would I think it's I think it's a good model for um, developing credibility with the investment banking marketplace.
0: Mark, would you mind kind of giving an overview from beginning to end about the life cycle of a deal? So, for example, stage one. Or step one is you get a teaser from an investment bank. And then the last step is you sold the business. So can we fill in the gaps in between there? (laughs) I realize this could be an entire semester of college work, Um, but let's do private equity 101 from a very high level and keep it in mind that, you know, some people in the audience who are watching or listening to this later on might not know what like a SIM is or a teaser is. It'd be great to kind of have that, that overview.
1: Exactly. Um, The most common way of getting a teaser these days is somebody will email me something. Some some bankers are a little more old school and like to call and tell me about it, which is fine. Either either way is good, but a teaser is going to, it's typically one or two pages. It's going to give you the highlights of the business, the size of the business, the industry, any key considerations. Um, It's a screen. It's a filter to let us know um, if it generally matches what we do. That said, it does not have all the details, and sometimes um, a SIM, a confidential information mem- memorandum, will have some pretty major details that were not in the teaser that you wish you'd known, i.e., a sixty percent customer concentration or you know something that's just a, a cliff risk, as we call it. So we'll take this, we'll take this the uh, the SIM uh, if we like, if we think we want to pursue it, and typically have I don't know three weeks, three, three or four weeks to come back to the banker with an indication of interest. Now, there's, a, there's several things that happen in between that period. Um, what we typically do, if it's something that we think it's worth spending time on, we'll come up with an initial list of questions and data requests. We'll send that to the banker, we'll set up a call with the banker, we'll ask all these initial questions we also keep a, uh, a third party um, on retainer that helps us on a confidential basis to get smart on given industries. There's certain industries we've, we've been in, we know them pretty well, but um, this firm is a wonderful resource, just a great resource to find us on a niche industry that we don't know much about. They'll go out and find people who have actually operated a high level in, in, this, um, in this world and can tell you it's, I mean, it's amazing what we learn sometimes on these calls that can sway us either positive or negative on the investment opportunity. Um, so, you know, that three or four week period, that's what we're doing. We're getting smart. We'll run it by our lenders to get some leverage reads to say, hey, what, what do you, what's the debt profile here? How much would you lend on a business like this? Assuming all the boxes are checked. So after that three or four weeks, um, if we decide to submit uh, an indication of interest, an IOI, um, we'll do that. And our goal at that point, if we really like the company, is um, to make the following step, which is generally speaking a management meeting. Um, 2020 has thrown a little bit of a wrench in that. Um, So the majority of management meetings uh, are virtual right now. Um, that's probably going to continue, and um, I'm not going to be surprised to see some aspect of virtual meetings stick around post-COVID. I think people have gotten used to it. They, from our side, people realize, um, hey, this is a lot cheaper than putting four or five people on an airplane, the hotel, the travel, the time. Um, and then from a from a, a a banker and company side, they're not traipsing eight or ten groups to their plant and really just broadcasting to the employees what's going on when all these suits are walking through. Um, so I think there's going to be some element of that. We we really do prefer to be in front of management teams because we like to articulate our track record and how we uh, we can show that we're really smart on the business. Um, and so I think we can sell ourselves better. But again, that's, that's going to stick around. Um, so typically from there, they're going to narrow the field. And Okay, a- I'm
0: sorry if you could rewind just a little bit. When you get the teaser, you sign the NDA, you get the sim, and you guys, you know, once you get the sim, what happens internally? Do you have your Monday morning investment committee meeting? You ask questions on whoever's look at the deal, and like what actually goes into the IOI between the sim? Sure. Yes, we're interested and the IOI stage. Can you kind of walk us through those steps?
1: Yeah, generally speaking, one or two of us are going to screen it. And if we agree that it's something worth spending time on, we're going to develop a deal team, we're going to develop three or four people that are going to be um, the sponsors, the, the, the chair, the chair people on this deal. And they're the ones who are going to come up with that initial list of questions. And they're going to take the lead, ultimately, ultimately, to closing and running that company for you know, managing that company for five years, if we chase it. So everybody in the firm—I mean, you just can't—you can't have everybody on it. Um, I will say though that, as again, as a small firm, um, we're all pretty well versed on on all the portfolio companies. I mean, there's, you know, there's there's nine on the deal side, if you will, and we have nine platform companies right now about to close on our tenth. So again, it's as it, it, and and that model probably won't apply at some of the shops that um, are very very active and may have 50 or 75 portfolio companies. So a very a very different model. So if we um, ultimately, you know, you're doing all kinds of things um, going through this process. The management meeting is, I mean, that's that's probably the most critical piece, honestly. Um, Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, um, the banker, the investment banker, the company, they're receiving a lot of offers that look extremely similar. I mean, because we're all getting our leverage reads, um, you know, we, we're we're factoring in the, the historical growth profile into our models. And in fact, so I mentioned we were going to be closing, um, we're going to be closing a new platform in January. And the banker was real honest. We, we got chosen. It kind of came down to three um, potential buyers. And they were we were fortunate that they chose us. The banker was very transparent. And he said, interestingly, three different groups. All three of us really, really liked it. All three groups were within $250,000 of each other in terms of enterprise value. I mean, so truly less than 1% delta there. And so... It was a great example of no outlier bids, um, and, the, and the company chose truly based on chemistry and fit and comfort. We gave them, with our letter of intent package, um, we gave them four different um, portfolio company references, CEOs that we, either we are currently partnering with or have partnered with historically, and we know that they called at least three of those references. So that was, a, that was a big consideration. And so this, this example was one where um, the sellers were reinvesting a significant amount into the new code. Um, so chemistry was extremely important. They just weren't walking away. They wanted somebody that would be a good, ethical, transparent partner. Um, they wanted somebody they felt comfortable with. They wanted somebody that they, they thought would take good care of their employees. Um, so there's a, there's a big element of salesmanship going on all through this process there's a big element of convincing the other side that um, especially since the prices were generally all equal um, of making sure that they're comfortable with um, the certainty of close. that some we weren't going to do something we had all the boxes checked we had our financing we had um, you know we were well on the way on documentation Uh, we weren't going to throw out any crazy terms in a purchase agreement Um, we would have reps and warranty insurance we would have we no, um, uh, no crazy due diligence requirements, um, you know, a big thing that that um, people get concerned about a process or third party reports. And so we lay out all the all the different third party um, diligence providers that we use, whether it be um, benefits or insurance or background checks or uh, it diligence. So there's a lot of things that. Um, that need to be done. One of the biggest ones is a quality of earnings report. Most every private equity group will bring in an outside, typically an accounting firm. We use kind of a consulting firm that their are former accountants um, and do these Q of E reports as they're called. Um, and sometimes, sometimes bankers will get nervous if, if you bring in a Q of E provider who has a reputation for just really nitpicking and things like that. We use a small boutique firm where you get you get kind of big four attention um, but you get the real important stuff and they're, they're business people they know how to get the closing they're really trying to help us identify material issues not trying to knitten at them. another another big issue um, is who you're using for a law firm. I mean there are definitely law firms out there that if a banker sees XYZ law firm coming they're like, oh no you yeah, know this is this, this could be a nightmare. Um, they're really tough. Um, and that's not our style. We use a very business-friendly law firm, and we actually hired our our, uh, former legal counsel. Now, he's not in-house counsel, but he does a lot of things that we don't have to farm outside, so it's cost effective, and he can kind of steer the ship, and he acts as a liaison between the company's lawyers um, and and our lawyers. So there's a lot of of moving pieces in all of that for example, this company that we just signed up, um, our uh, four of my colleagues are out in a very snow-covered Oklahoma right now, um, and they're working on that. They're they're in person. There's a you know a massive diligence list, as you can imagine. They're going through that. They're having meetings with the employees. So there's all these steps that take you um, up to closing. Um, Post closing generally speaking, we let, we leave the, we leave the company alone for a little bit. They've had, they've dedicated at least six months to a sell side process. It's exhaustive. So we kind of let them get back to running the business for a little while. Not too long after that, you know, we'll have a kickoff strategy meeting. We'll talk about what we need to do in the first six months. We'll talk about, we'll, it'll be a brainstorming whiteboard session. What are the most, um, what are the most actionable paths to grow. Sorry,
0: Mark, if I could pause you. So to <clears throat> purchasing the company all the way back to getting a teaser, about how long is that process?
1: Um, depends on how quickly they move, but it can be um, it can be anywhere from three to six months.
0: Okay. Yeah. And back on the purchase agreement, you said no crazy terms. What would be an example of crazy terms?
1: Oh, um, you know, if people are trying to play games with the working capital adjustment and, and working capital, you're, you're kind of buying a company at an average level of working capital, it's receivables, it's inventories, it's payables. If somebody's trying to utilize that as a purchase price mechanism and be unfair and basically um, buy the company for less, you know, that's, that's out of market. Um, if you are... Um, um, if you're not treating, if you're not treating the management, management investors the same, if you have a different, some kind of a tricky, funky multi-share agreement where their, their shares aren't as valuable as our shares, yeah. um, that's going to be looked at not well. And we don't ever do that. I and mean, we're all on the same page. We sit at the same table and, and that, that makes a big difference.
3: Mark, I've got a, uh, quick question for you. Um, thanks for your, your time and all this, uh, Great knowledge of providing to everybody. Um, you spoke earlier, you alluded to kind of one to two guys on the uh, essential deal team. Um, and I know it's different at, at every firm, but at River Associates, do you see typically on you know your average deal, those one to two guys that are on that team or, or, or girls uh, follow through all the way through to LOI or is it more um, that handoff to the transaction side of the house?
2: Yeah, yeah, you're you're on
1: mute. I do not know what happened there. Um. So we'll actually have three or four, um, on the deal team, and they'll they'll take the lead on it, um, really from pre um, pre indication of interest, and they will be they will be the team that will be involved in that for you know five plus years.
3: Oh well. So okay, that's that's just past acquisition and actually running the company or, or seeing it
1: big picture nice okay yep yep oh and again we're a small firm so very often you know i i, I think i've met i mean i've met every ceo in the you know in, in the portfolios, which is nice because again we're a small firm and we'll typically we'll have quarterly board meetings but we'll typically have um maybe one one a year in chattanooga for example um, and you know, just recently we had a few of the CEOs come play golf with us at a really nice, nice golf course here. And so they, they really appreciate that. It gives them a chance to meet other members of the firm. Um, so yeah, we'll, at that kind of kickoff meeting, if you will, we're starting to develop a strategy and we really, and, and don't get me wrong. It's, it's not, that's not the first time we're thinking about strategy. Obviously, um, we've done a lot of that thinking before. Um, If there's going to be be a strategic acquisition search, um, we're gonna talk about the various directions you can go, whether it be buy a competitor, add a product line. What what are you seeking in 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 an acquisition? Does it have to be able to be tucked into the operations at the the plant level? Can it be somewhere else uh, in the country? Um, Maybe that's beneficial, maybe it's not depends on the business. So we're going to develop a strategic acquisition plan. Um, And most often, we're going to hire a third party um, buy side um, investment bank to go out and canvas the landscape. And these are kind of unique banks out there. They don't do sell sides, typically. Um, Some of them do. But um, they're scouring the landscape, and they are finding, in a perfect world, businesses that your management team might not even known existed. Um, but they would Mark, I am
0: very familiar with this as a analyst and associate. However, I was calling Singapore and Korea and Japan from New York because we we're doing buy side searches on behalf of US based corporates into Asia. So I remember one project I was in the office at like one and two and 3am calling Singapore education de- companies like Oh my god. Oh, yeah. That was That's- fun
1: that sounds rough yeah we're not we're taking not, not them outside of outside the u.s and canada so our job is a little easier and listen they're not always successful um you know ultimately the the, the most common answer you get from a potential seller is i'm not for sale yeah. um and the second most common is well yeah i'm for sale at a crazy multiple um right there, there are some it, it's interesting um you know, managers who are in a, in a given industry, they oftentimes think they know everybody in the industry. It's just not true. I mean, it's just so many different paths you can go down. Um, and you, can, you, you might have 10% of your business dedicated to one, one kind of certain product line. Um, and we've had that scenario before where we've gone out and we've augmented that product line. So by the time we exit the company, that's half of your business. And so there's just a, it's a really wide universe, and uh, a lot of it does come down to timing when you approach these companies, um, and what's going on in in their life. So um, so on an on an ongoing basis, we're going to have quarterly board meetings with the companies. Um, we're going to talk to them though, and we're going to talk to the companies every week or so. I mean, it, and and if there's something going on, if there's um, a key hire going on, if there's a plan expansion. Um, if there's an acquisition going on, we're talking to them, you know, every other day. Um, so there's a we develop a cadence with each company, and in terms of how we interact, um, we we get a weekly flash report from all of our companies, and it's tailored. We don't give them a something that's a cookie cutter. It's tailored to each business, and basically, it's, it's the things that the the CEO, the CFO, um, operations folks they're looking at anyway. It's Key metrics of the business, it's backlog, it's shipping, it's on time shipping. It's things to let us know if there's any trends that we should be aware of. So there's no surprises. And it's a very helpful thing. Um, we're gonna handle the monthly financials. We're gonna we're going coordinate the communication of the monthly financials um, to our lenders. Um, so we have a, a general stock kind of uh, reporting and letter that we send to all of our lenders. Um, I mean, those are, those are definitely the key elements of what we're doing with these companies. With the ultimate growth, uh, the ultimate goal is to grow the business. And um, when we're modeling a company, I don't know how other groups do it, but we're trying to come up with a realistic base case scenario. And what we're looking for to get interested in is essentially a double, if you will. Um, we're judged, our investors judge us on two key metrics. Um, that is a multiple of capital invested. So if you invest a dollar and you, you, know, you give back two, that's a, that's a double, um, as well as an internal rate of return, so your IRR. Um, I think most investors tend to lean more, um, put more importance on the multiple of capital because the IRR, as you probably know, Jordan, can be a little tricked up and is it's highly influenced by um, the clock. And if you have a big hit and sell it after a year, you have a, you have a crazy IRR. But as one, as one LP told me once, you can't spend IRR. So um, it's, a, it's a pretty valid point. Um, now, when I say, and again, this is a little inside baseball, so stop me if, if you want, but when I say we want to double in a, in a conservative, in a base case, um, we're not assuming. Um, any positive multiple arbitrage. So say we buy a company for eight times, we're just gonna assume we're gonna sell it for eight times. Over our history, we have had um, multiple arbitrage uh, in 90% of our exits. So again, that, that keeps it fairly conservative. And we're in a base case, we're typically not assuming we're gonna have any heroics with add-on acquisitions. Um, but again, we've done add-on acquisitions in 70% of the platforms. Mark, so that, how do you, how what is your,
0: your general strategy? For example, some some private equity firms say, we're gonna take you from regional to national. We're gonna take you from national to international. We're gonna take you from distress to you're, you're gonna to live to fight another day. Um, what is your general um, MO?
1: Um, we're not gonna be, so typically we're not the distress guys. So we're not buying a troubled asset. Um, and we're typically not going to be aggressive on um, international acquisitions. So it's really more taking a you know, $40 million widget company and figuring out the levers that are ultimately going to make that business attractive in five or so years to a broader universe of buyers. And that's going to be, A, growing, growing the EBITDA, that's going to be B doing things that um, are going to continue to enhance the equity value, i.e., growth. So um, emphasizing, if you can go through acquisition and find um, other growth segments that you can that you can add to the business, um, that's going to enhance um, your multiple down the road. So you're trying to find those pieces out there that. You're thinking ahead and, and saying what is the what is the um, what's the buyer universe going to look like and what are they going to think of our business? So every time we're looking at an acquisition, we think, well, what's that going to do to our to our equity? Um, and oftentimes, you know, we'll bring in investment banks early in the process to get their perspective. Say, hey, we're yeah. looking at here are the here's the here are the three add-on acquisitions we're looking at. You know, if you were selling the company in five years.
0: How would you, you position just, this? Yeah. What does strategics look like? Is it more financial? Well, um, so if we could maybe shift over a little bit more of the discussion, maybe like 90 degrees to the right so and, and focus on like Mike and Zach and, you know, giving your candid feedback about where they are at and where they, the path that they are going down. Um, but maybe Zach, can you kind of kick off and just kind of give background of where your head's at? and kind of the path that you want to take. And then Mark, it'd be great to hear your feedback on you know, sure. what it takes to succeed, if um, you know, it's a reasonable path, and if it is, what it takes to go down that.
3: Yeah, I'd love to, love to get your feedback, Mark. Um, so thousand was a view. Uh, active duty military and the SEAL teams um, transition out in a year. I'm currently in my, starting my second year at UCLA MBA uh at anderson uh own a business here in san diego um lbo'd it owner financed it um was looking to exit pre-covid and then we decided to stay on um to see to see the, the shift through covid um, uh, just basically for our employees because um, we we became obviously very close with them uh, and grew the team uh, there's about nine to ten employees um regardless looking to transition in uh, January 22, so in a year, uh, trying to secure some uh, internships prior to then, Yep. and looking at, you know, PE as a whole, uh, whether it's the transaction side of the house or the business development side of the house. Um, gotten a amazing opportunity to speak with uh, uh, awesome people like yourself uh, that are on the business development side of the house. Um, and Jordan's been a great sort of steward of that and, and showing us how the uh, development side works. I personally am sort of drawn to the transaction side of the house um, just from my experience with my business because I sort of did the due diligence, um, the capital, the whole the whole nuts and bolts of it. That's awesome. um, and I, I really enjoyed the the strategy behind it. Uh, yeah. which is what initially got me interested in private equity, uh, you know, in, in general. Um, but just trying to see, hey, you know, since I'm not your atypical background uh, that transaction side of the house looks for, uh, what is typically, you know, the realities of that? Do you think that's something that I can overcome and actually, you know, do? Or do you think I have more potential in the, you know, business development side of the house? Uh, and still getting my foot
1: in the door and, and being involved in the transactions, right? I think your I think your background lends to it well. I think what you need and what Mike needs, and we talked about this, is you just you need some you need some intros. You need some intros to groups. Um, it is a it's a funny um, getting into private equity is just a funny quiet thing, oftentimes, and it it usually comes from personal connections and and who you meet. Um, and who 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 introduces you, and then just timing, what what people are looking for. As I said, the by far the most common route, and what we've done with all of our younger guys is hired them from investment bank um, programs. You know, Jordan may know this. I mean, are there? I wonder does, does ACG have any kind of resource in, with respect to this, Jordan? I mean, this is this would be a this would be a great thing for something like ACG to focus
0: on. Um, I I have not asked them. Um, It could be interesting to do that plug almost as like a veteran initiative. Yeah. Um, But I I think, you know, if it helps add a little bit of color to this, you know, when you look at the sponsor, the private equity universe, you have the funded sponsors that recruit associates, for the investment team or people from the BD team who yep. come from banking
2: for the yep. investment
0: roles. Um, then you have the fundless sponsors or the independent sponsors. Um, you know, I'm even thinking of Cold War Capital in Chicago where you know, they have a very unique mission, which is to recruit people from the special operations community, the fighter pilot community to specifically go in and help operate businesses. Um, there are firms or like Academy Securities, which is more on like the investment banking side, where they have veterans as part of their DNA. Yep. So I'm trying to like, there's one angle in there if you come from a non-traditional background. Um, and I, I forget if Cold War is funded or not at this point, but another thing I think was a good entry point is working for an independent sponsor that has done you know five deals in the past five years or six years and it's usually one maybe two people and you tell that person who is senior who is also doing the junior work hey let me just help you out on anything you need and then you get that exposure for six months. Now you might not get paid or you might get paid way under market.
3: Well, that's a but great, I think that's another entry route. We've talked about, that's a great position that, you know, I am in, in my stage, Mike's, you know, uh, a little later on and he's very close to transitioning. So, you know, he's sort of been doing the same thing, but, you know, there's amazing programs of which you know a lot about Jordan um, of like the DOD skill bridge and the care coalition where, essentially tax dollars go to fund us being interns or us just getting exposure to the, to the business. So it's, it's literally an immediate value add of like, Hey, how can, how can we help? You know, there's no uh, delusions of grandeur or humility issues. I just, I just want to help and however, whatever capacity that is just to get exposure to, you know, to a shop. So um, there are programs out there that, that lend hugely
0: to that. And they pay active duty salary, right, on SkillBridge?
2: No, you don't. You yeah, you get your active duty salary, but you can't get paid by the actual firm that uh, yeah. you're working for. So it, it's it's somewhat limiting um, if you have to travel for it, right? Normally, it's kind of tied to the uh, the location. Although there are some companies that are able to actually like the bigger ones are able to put people up in um, you know room and board that type of stuff, which does kind of. Uh, mitigate risk or financial risk or people are about to move to an area and they stay with their family members and like they're looking to settle down in that area so if I wanted to move to New York I already I move I do a skill bridge and then I stay there and I reside because the military will pay for my my move and I'll be able to collect the um, you know the it's, allowance.
3: It's also great right now with COVID because there's there's so little travel actually happening with firms that, that you know that everything's so virtual.
2: Here here's a question talking about the different opportunities, and th- this has emerged a couple of times, especially for access to the transaction uh, transaction side of the house, family offices. So I, I've spoken to a couple people in the uh, recent weeks that said that family offices are becoming a little bit more aggressive when it comes to building yeah. a team together and putting it. Um, they they have the actual capital where they can hire people. What is the likelihood for us uh, for that to to get our foot in the door? Is that something that's viable? Is it something that's just not like what's your what's your opinion on it?
1: I don't, you know, I don't interact with the family offices all that much. They're typically buyers of our transactions. I think the better, the better audience for that question would be um, the investment bankers who identify. I mean, because family offices—they're funny. Um, You're right; they're definitely getting their act together, becoming very professional, and bringing in more um, former private equity people. Uh, Used to be, they were known as tire kickers. They weren't going to step up, and that is not the case. We we exited a really good company a few years ago to a, to a family office who brought in professional people and they were very aggressive um, in every respect. So that's definitely becoming, um, it's a definitely a channel of buyers growing. Um, they're going to be adding people. So I, I would not rule it out at all. And I think the investment banking community is the way to touch those people because oftentimes uh, private equity people, you know, the the, the family offices, oftentimes they're not, you know they're not traveling the acg circuit if you will they're not they're just not it's a it's a totally different beast and so i'm sure at some point they will and you will get to know you know but but they're like jordan you know those family offices they're not hanging out with me and bob landis and ted kramer yeah. and gretchen and jay it's just a it's a different
0: sector yeah my take on it is that the people who i've seen at family offices in like a bd function they tend to have come from some type of institutional fund where they can bring those best practices as opposed to a more training uh, a training mindset. Um, in in this, Some of the interaction now, that's my limited data set. Um, and the other side, but on the other side of this, let's say that you do connect with somebody in the firm, your decision makers to bring you on as an intern, a fellow, an associate or whatever, It tends to be, not have to go through a more traditional process. I don't know if that's if you'd agree with that or not, Mark. Do
1: you know, Jordan? Do you know if there's any way? Because I picture, um, I picture firms, whether it be family offices or private equity or whatnot. I picture firms that have principals that have a military background being, the most open, to this concept of helping helping fellow vets transition in is there any way of of finding that out i mean i i I know a few people just just because i happen to know and i know they're in the military is there any way to find that
0: so there's not as much data that like a a, an organization for that that i know of but I, i think this is making me think about you know what's actionable here and you know we were talking with a firm in the Northeast and you know they've done multiple funds and now the founder was wants to get very involved in either donating to veteran causes or get involved in helping vets get jobs in the portfolio companies. Um, Atlas Holdings has done a great job hiring vets from like that I've worked with the past four years. But I think the thing that I've like my dream scenario here is where we get a small group of committed decision-makers, and influencers to say, we are going to have, between this group of 10 partners at different firms, we are going to commit to doing one internship you know, in the next couple of quarters, and then you have 10. And then what happens is that serves as a template for everyone else on how to do that potential fellowship or internship. Um, Atlas Holdings, they have their leadership development program and they place people in the operating companies. And we've spoken to two of the guys who have transitioned that's and they are really enjoying that. It's really, really working out well. Um, but I I think the, you know, I think what I've seen in the past four years is that there's this big perceived risk, which is actually inaccurate. Um, and it's just I think the action here is finding a couple people say, Listen, be an intern do it for a month. If it doesn't work out, guys, it's no harm, no foul. Let's move on. Do it for a month or two and it's remote and it's no risk. And by the way, DOD pays for it by your tax dollars. Like finding, yeah. like literally just come up with a list. I would rather spend, go so much deeper into those 10, like find a list of 10 firms who can do that. And then we message that to the industry to say, Hey, here's what we did. Um. I don't know. I don't have an answer. I've just kind of I think it's just one of the things I've noticed, we can look at a piece of paper all the time, but the thing that's the biggest representative of what transitioning vets from this particular community can do where Mack and
2: Zach come from is just like just throwing them directly into the business. I'd I'd like to touch on that. So from uh, the conversations and the people that I've been meeting, um, there's some phenomenal programs out there in the bulk brackets. These giant firms, they have these really good programs designed specifically for veterans but then there's you got to think of it this way um there's a different type of veteran the longer you stay in the less um the more difficult it is to transition and the barrier to entry but then also the skills the longer you stay in are more translatable to the lower middle market and these boutique shops that you have to roll up your sleeves and do a little bit more you got the leadership and you got a lot of uh, other intangible assets and characteristics that really play well to that field or that space that's the space that seems the most hesitant to bring in uh you know veterans are kind of the diversity hire because there there there's very much of a pipeline like you said you're you're going to go to a bigger firm or you're going to come out of investment banking because they don't necessarily have the time or the resources to train that individual and there's there's a lingering fear where's um I want to come in, and even on the business development side, 20 years of experience, uh, a graduate degree at an MBA, and they still view me kind of as somebody who's uh, you know, coming out of an undergrad with zero uh, business experience. So how do we get past that? How do we break down that barrier? And I think the only way to do it is by placing people, building solid reputations that, hey, these veterans are actually you know, force multipliers and doing really, really well in that environment. But then also, what are the technical skills? Like on the business development side, what are the skill sets that I could train on prior to exit, exiting the military? Like I, the modeling, the Wall Street prep, what else am I doing? Working on CRMs. What are the things that, uh, the, the hard skill sets that, will lessen kind of the training that uh, a managing partner, director, or VP is going to commit?
1: You know, it's interesting. Um, I think you get different answers from different private equity shops, but in all candor, I mean, in that role, soft skills are more important. I think you heard this, Jordan, on our, you know, on our Legends webinar, the soft skills are critical. And um, I mean, I think anybody can learn. And I don't listen. I don't need to do the modeling. I don't do the modeling, so that's not that's not critical. We've got people who can do that. Um, you know, basic knowledge of CRM is is easy to learn, obviously. And most firms have um, some an admin that's more focused on the details and the guts of entering information. But I think it's honestly the soft skills, and um, you're only going to convince people of that by getting in front of them and spending time with them and, you know, getting to know you as a person. Um, And I think everybody, everybody on our webinar Jordan would say the same thing. Um, Really, that's, that's the critical side of it. And can you develop a relationship? Um, Are you thoughtful? Do you care about people? I mean, I think Jordan heard that loud and clear um, the other day.
0: So what? And Mike, I think you're also sandbagging your background. (laughs) Like you have clear financial modeling skills and diligence and you have plenty of reps in the gym on deals. Um, That's
3: the other, that's the other problem is a lot of, a lot of guys, um, you know, with similar backgrounds to us have to really get over a big hurdle that has been, you know, by all means sort of beaten out of us since inception of our of our of our pipeline or program of like don't teach your own horn don't don't be braggadocious don't and it's really hard transitioning to get over that because you're meeting people that have no clue who you are or what you know or your capabilities and and how you can be a value add and that's something that that i'm having to learn in this process i know mike has as well um because that's just so strongly looked down upon in our community. It's like, hey, you did a great job. Cool, pat on the back. You did you did your job. That's what you were supposed to do. Um, and so, you know, having that mindset shift, not coming across like, you know, arrogant or or being braggadocious is there's a balance there, right? It's like it's knowing what you're what you can bring to the table. Looking at it from the firm's perspective on how to to, to hedge their risk. And, and say, hey, like, I'm here to help. All you need to do is, is give me a thumbs up. And I'm, you know, being a self-starter, uh, being aggressive in understanding what you don't know and trying to fill those gaps and those voids. Um, you know, all these character traits that so many people and so many firms are saying, hey, like, this is a, a, a requirement for private equity or for our firm. It's like, we have that in spades, it's just, getting them to just say, okay, (laughs) just cracking that door.
0: Um, Zach, you and I were talking about this last night. Um, You know, we're like, for example, if you were to, to look at the BD function, we were kind of thinking through, well, wait a second. When you're sitting across the table, you can look at a founder and say, I know what it's like to own a business. Like I own my own gym. I, I know what it's like to go the past year and have to make payroll and have to make tough decisions. Like I know so, what it's like to be in your shoes.
3: Especially from interacting with the, the, essentially the client, right? It's, it's saying, hey, like like Jordan, you just alluded to, like I know what it's like to, to take a paycheck and and want to take less so I know my employees can take more, especially when I'm already in uh, a a decently well-paying job. It's like, okay, well, how many months can I forego of any benefit from this business so my employees, that that is their sole livelihood can make their rent, right? And I know that that immediate connection with so many, you know, lower market, mid-market businesses, would immediately resonate whereas not everybody not everybody especially coming out of banking has that ability to have that kind of conversation um so it's just it's getting people to, <laughs> to
1: understand that and see that well i i think i mean the elephant in the room is that um military experience is is held in such high esteem i mean you're you guys are already way up the totem pole when you walk in the door to a business owner, I can, I mean, I can just, I would imagine you'd be phenomenal in a management team, a management meeting session, if you will, and just automatically, you have the credibility of what you've done for for years. Um, What I'll do, I'm gonna reach out to uh, the recruiter that we typically use, um, and just ask if there's, if they have any thoughts on how something could develop along these lines. I don't. I don't know if they do anything or not, but I think it's such a worthy cause, and um, it's awesome that you have taken this you know, under your wing, Jordan, to do this. And I, I think it just needs to be some type of initiative um, to develop this channel, because I mean, you guys. I'm sure you're gonna. You're gonna do. You're gonna land somewhere, and you're gonna do great. But it's gonna come from. It's gonna come from shoe leather. A But if there was some type of central, and and like I said, at ACG, if ACG could just figure out, I don't think they have to do much. If they could figure out uh, people in investment banking um, and private equity with military experience, if if you've got that universe, I mean, there's, I don't know how, there's probably 10,000 members of ACG. I mean, if there's 200 of those, which there's probably more that have military experience, boom, there's a, there's a Rolodex that you guys can get your resumes in front of. Uh,
2: here, here's another question. I'm going to flip it now based off of what you just said. And uh, this has come up a couple of times. How does our background, how do we downplay it so it doesn't become intimidating? Because a lot of us are coming in and there's, there's like you said, there's um, the, there's a deep appreciation for what we do. There's also kind of a mystique about it. And for individuals that aren't necessarily secure kind of in their leadership or their management position, they might see us coming in as a threat. Whereas we we don't have that intention at all. We want to come in and we want to be part of the team regardless of where we fall in it. And we want to just be able to provide them um, the benefit of our experience. Right? So, but where do we, where how do we how do we best sell that to Articulate, hey, we we are capable, but then also the humility aspect of it, where we're not going to come in overly intense or intimidating.
1: Um, you might be right. I mean, I would say from our standpoint, we, we, we I, you know our shop, we just wouldn't do. He basically
0: way. just say you're not as cool as you think you are, Mike. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm saying you,
2: you can't scare people from Tennessee anyway, so, so they're good.
1: No, um, I think you only do that in person. I mean, I think you, I mean, you get in front of people and they realize you're humble and you're not out to, I mean, although you could break my neck 10 ways from Sunday before I could turn around, I don't don't think that's what you're there to do uh, or or assume my leadership position. Um, I, I, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm naive. I just, I'd like to think that's not an issue,
0: but you do that in person. Yes. Um, What's actionable here? What can we, what are some things, like what are the takeaways um, from this? Well, on my
1: my end, I'm going to reach out to our recruiter, see if they have any knowledge or ideas. I'm also going to reach out to a friend who's actually the, uh, he's the global chair of ACG um, and just pick his brain. If there's there's any kind of data that they can provide um, that would be a resource for you guys to go to.
2: Really that, appreciate this, Mark. Yeah, this it is, is this awesome. awesome. It's always great talking to you.
1: Well, I think this is such a noble cause. I mean, you, Jordan, were you in the military, Jordan?
0: No, I read a book and then went on LinkedIn and then connected with guys who are Navy SEALs. And then four years later, and 2,000 hours of volunteer hours. I've got you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's caught. I can't, it's a, I can't tell you, uh,
3: Jordan's been such a huge uh, help and asset in just a short amount of time that, um, I've been yeah. involved with 51 labs or 51 Bets. it's it's uh it's humbling to see and I don't I don't know anybody that necessarily works as hard as Jordan does um especially uh balancing all the different things he does uh and still somewhat somehow keeping us front of mind and trying to uh push our push us forward uh it's it's humbling to see so and, and guys like you mark that, are, that volunteer their time to come sit in and let us let us pick your brain so uh, no and just share your
2: experiences.
1: It's no big deal. I'm Listen, I'm in awe of what you guys have accomplished in your career. And just, you know, it's pretty neat. And I would love to be able to help. And I think, I just don't think anybody, Jordan, has ever focused on this. I just think if yeah. they realize what a good cause and how it could benefit, whether it be the private equity group or the underlying uh, portfolio companies. I mean, I, I haven't done the math, but I can't imagine how many private equity owned portfolio companies are out there in the United States. It's also
3: like different stages right like me and Mike, uh, Mike's sort of like trailblazing a way forward uh, with me even you know in the short amount of time that I've been you know undertaking this path and so his insight that he's passing back to me is hugely helpful um, and you know I'm at the point in, in my kind of timeline where I'm trying to secure um, essentially you know as many internships as I possibly can up until uh, my transition date just to get exposure and experience right and, and just be more of a value add and Mike's uh, on the on the tail end of that where he's looking to, to be actionable right and trying yeah. to you know not just do you know the necessarily the informational interviews anymore and actually take some steps in the initiative uh, so it's it's kind of interesting to the whole the pipeline there's there's different kind of uh, wickets along the way um, that people can come in and, and offer different resources and be different value add.
2: Yeah, and I, I would say one of the weakest thing is there's a lot of organizations and the prep is really good that, that exists. There's also a lot of good organizations and a lot of people that are willing to help with the internships and that type of stuff to develop the training skills or, or the skills necessary. Where, where we're lacking is kind of that finishing piece of getting people a job somewhere within the industry. It's, um, it just seems that there's no real organization that's able to do that correctly. Um, and that's kind of the placement piece uh, where most guys kind of freak out is, okay, we've done a bunch of uh, interviews. We, we understand this. We understand the processes. We've spent time re-educating ourselves in order to actually be more valuable to that industry. Now it's that placement piece um, that we're kind of missing.
1: I agree. I I Uh, wish I had a go-to answer for that.
0: Yeah. I I think what what I, what I've learned is just like um, understanding what I'm best at within this space. And like, what I am best at is, Hey, do you know anybody at this type of firm? Cool. Let me do this right now. Boom, 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 done. And I'll do that for like, like with Mike at 10 firms in at 10 firms in I think my kid just pooped all over the bed. He pooped and I just got back to the shower. I got the four-year-old jumped in naked as well. The one-year-old pooped all over after a shower. This is fun times. Um, But it's. (laughs) Can't make it up. Can't make it up. (laughs) Um, So that's what I realized is like what I need to be most effective at is being the connector, being the super connector. Um, as opposed to spending all the time that goes into resume development, which I think, you know, like let's say you want to be paired with one person, and the whole thing's get really, really deep into that transition, um, or being the connector or whatever it is. So, um, well, I got to go clean up a crib over here, uh, guys. This is awesome.
1: This is great, guys. Really um, pleasure to pleasure to talk to you again, Mike, and pleasure to talk with you. For the first time zach and um great thank great you thank you again and I, i've got a couple of action items that i'm going to follow up on and see if there's see if i can get any traction or, or just get some other ideas of maybe where we could go with this
2: really appreciate thank very it much. Uh, thank you so Absolutely. much for everything um